Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr Virginia Reid and today to discuss some fascinating new research into menses and blood loss specifically, I have with me Dr Jackie Mabin from the University of Edinburgh's MRC Centre for Reproductive Health. Welcome Jackie. Thank you very much. Hello. I actually got sent this information by my teenage daughter. It appears that there's an awful lot of young girls, and I'd imagine older women as well out there, still bothered by menzies. And in this day and age, it's amazing to me that we still have these very fundamental problems that, although they don't, um, aren't probably going to cause a great deal of mortality, are very, very difficult for people. That's right. Um, it's, it's one of the most common problems that we see in the gynaecology clinics that we run here. I think probably one in three women will have problems with their periods at some point in their lifetime. Um, So it's something that affects a lot of people and probably is more common now than than it was previously because um, just with the change in society and the role that women have, we are not pregnant and lactating for most of our reproductive lives. So really, I think it's a, a, a modern problem and one that we're really only seeing the, the full brunt of now. I wouldn't be able to tell you the exact figures, but certainly our, our ancestors and people in less developed countries are having probably about 40 periods in their reproductive life. Uh, whereas women in industrialised nations and developed countries are probably having more like 400. Um, so I think there's been a, a massive shift um, in the hundreds in, in terms of how many times we actually menstruate in our lives. And although I think you hit the nail on the head, although it's not life-threatening, it's certainly life-altering. And, you know, people can't do uh, their normal roles, uh, be that in the house or out working, um, for maybe one week out of every four, if not if not longer. Uh, so it has a, a huge impact and is becoming more and more prevalent. So what do we consider to be normal menses? Is there such a definition in existence? Yeah, well, this is something that uh, sort of world experts have been working on really quite recently. Um, I think the problem um, that women are facing is that there wasn't any sort of cohesive approach towards menstrual problems and I don't think there was a great definition of what was normal and what was normal maybe in Australia was different from what we considered normal here in the UK which was different from what people considered in in the States. So uh, a few years ago the leading experts in the field all sat around a table and developed a, a score of what was normal and tried to classify what might be abnormal and I think that's really pushed things forward. Um, and you know, we now know that everybody has agreed that what's normal is that a woman would bleed um, for anything between four and a half and eight days, roughly once a month. Uh, but again, that can vary anywhere between 24 days and 38 days uh, from the first day of one period to the first day of the next. And we expect it to be reasonably regular, um, so less than 20 days variation over 12 months. And we expect the volume to be anywhere between 5 and 80 mils, which that one's a bit funny because people aren't really going to know the exact amount. Um, and it's probably more accurate for you know people in their everyday lives to, to think about that and what they can cope with. Um, so is it impacting on their lives? Are they able to do their normal things? But certainly that objective definition is very useful for research into heavy periods, and that's where that one uh, really comes into its own. Uh, but really the the main thing for women is 
are you able to cope with the amount of bleeding that you have? And that changes from woman to woman. Someone on the front line, you sort of in the military, will be able to cope with very little bleeding because they just can't function when having a period. Uh, whereas a woman who maybe works from home will be able to manage a significantly higher loss um, than somebody who hasn't got access to changing facilities and that kind of thing. Um, so that, I think that um, has really helped that sort of FIGO system um, is the, the sort of name for that classification and that those definitions. And I think that is so important in driving forward uh, research uh, because everybody works to the same standards and then you can compare between different research studies. So I think that's quite interesting for women to know what's normal and what isn't. And it's really useful for, for research in the field. Most people, though, wouldn't really relate to meals, would they? How do we no. question people about their blood loss in research trials, for example? Well, what we tend to do, just if someone comes in um, with period problems, we tend to ask, um, you know, what impact is this having on your life? And they they offer that quite quickly because that's usually why they've presented to the doctor. Uh, but you can you know you can ask about how often people are changing their sanitary wear, um, if they ever flood through onto their clothes, and those would be indicators of quite heavy loss, uh, particularly if people are flooding through during the day, uh, because you know no one would would choose for that to happen, and that's you know that's a a, a real indicator of abnormally heavy bleeding. Um, if they're changing frequently and still sometimes flooding through onto clothes, there's usually a real problem there. Mm. So if they're having to stay inside, for example, or, or cancel yeah. appointments, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, in this day and age, a lot of women are, are working. Um, and if they're having to take lots of days off work or young girls, if they're missing a lot of school, then that has significant knock-on effects for the whole of society, as well as very personal effects for the woman herself. And that's just not acceptable. Um, you need to be able to not acceptable for the woman. Um, she needs to be able to function and, and carry out her normal uh, everyday life. And certainly for, for younger people, if they have a significant impact on their education, that's, I mean, that's, that's not an acceptable way to start your, your young life. Um, you need to have access and be able to access and, and utilise all of the great education system that we're very lucky to have. Yeah, it's mostly sporting pursuits, isn't it? I mean, we, we swim a lot in Australia. That's a major issue if you have problems with, you know, excessive bleeding. Absolutely. Mm. And I think if it's getting to the stage where you're not able to maximise the opportunities that life presents, then there are treatments available that can help uh, with period problems. Um, I have to hold my hands up and say I don't think they're perfect yet, which is why we're doing research to try and develop better ones. Um, but, you know, there are things that women can do to help uh, manage their periods. And, you know, I think people should be asking for help if it's having an impact on their lives. Thank you. That's good advice. You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing Menzies with Dr Jackie Mabin of the MRC Centre for Reproductive Health at Edinburgh University. Are you able to comment on pain? That seems to be another major symptom you know, sometimes people equate them, the amount of loss and the amount of pain that, yeah, that people absolutely. get with their periods. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, a very sensible association. Um, I think sometimes pain can happen for a number of reasons. Sometimes that's um, because the blood loss is very heavy. 
Um, and if the blood loss is heavy, particularly if there are clots, that can be very painful for women to pass those. So sometimes addressing the heaviness of a period will naturally increase or decrease the amount of pain that women are experiencing during a period. Um, but pain can also happen uh, because there's too much inflammation during a period. And that's particularly prevalent in young women. So people can, can find that their periods are very um, sore, painful, heavy um, at the start of their reproductive life. And thankfully, that usually settles down, but might not settle for a couple of years. Um, and that is usually due to increased inflammatory um, response during a period and again there are ways of of counteracting that and something sometimes something as simple as a as an anti-inflammatory medication can really help Um, and the nice thing about that is it doesn't contain any hormones and it can really help with the with the the pain that particularly young girls experience Um, the other um, time that pain occurs is if there's at some underlying pathology, so something like endometriosis. Um, and that's not my particular research interest, uh, but your colleagues within our centre are studying endometriosis and its impact on women. And it's it's really very common. That's where the lining of the womb is um, found in other areas of the body, um, so outside the uterus itself. And it responds in the same way during a period um, and bleeds and causes a lot of pain, particularly around the, the abdomen usually. Um, and it's it's a very common condition. It's probably as common as asthma. Um, but people are unaware of it because it's on the inside. Um, and it can be tricky to diagnose. Um, so it's you know, it's something that if you're if you're experiencing very painful periods, um, for a number of years, it's, it's worth asking your doctor about endometriosis and whether they think that that may be something um, that's going on. Uh, but again, there's, there's ways of treating that. Um, and once you get a, a diagnosis of endometriosis, usually um, with you know, input from a gynecologist, things can be greatly improved for women. But I think the tricky thing with endometriosis is making the diagnosis. So it's, it's worth asking your doctor about it if you have very significant pain. Hmm. I find that a lot of young women particularly do know about anti-inflammatories, but they seem to be taking a lot more than the guidelines, particularly in the first couple of days, because, as you say, they don't want to miss things like school, university exams, etc. Do we have any evidence of any harm from that? Well, it, I think taking more than the recommended dose probably won't do you any good. Um, I don't think it will give you additional pain relief because, you know, the medications are set up and designed to work over a certain time period. So an anti-inflammatory, for example, works over eight hours and taking another one after two to three hours probably won't give you any additional benefits. Um, The harm in that is that, you know, they can have some side effects on the stomach um, and cause stomach problems. Um, Usually if you're just taking them for a short spell of time during a period, the side effects are are really not very significant. But I I certainly wouldn't be advising anyone to take more than the recommended dose. And I think if you are getting to that stage where you feel you you do need to take more than the recommended dose, you should be seeing your doctor about some alternate treatments that you can use alongside the anti-inflammatories. Doubling the dose of anti-inflammatories won't give you any additional benefits, may do some harm, but there are medications that you can take alongside that are safe to take that probably will help. So most of the women that I know 
usually go for the oral contraceptive pill. Would that be one of the treatments mm. that you were were thinking about? Yeah, so so hormonal treatments um, can really help by evening out the hormone levels. You can uh, you can sort of alter the the inflammatory response in the womb and sort of change the amount of bleeding and the amount of pain that people can experience. So things like the oral contraceptive pill or um, there's a hormonal coil system that you can use um, that you know works exactly where it's needed within the womb. Um, these can be really helpful for a lot of women. Some women they they won't work for, uh, but maybe about eighty percent of people will get a significant benefit with those types of treatments. The problem is that many women don't want to use hormonal preparations, um, and I hear women in my clinic saying that not infrequently, uh, particularly if they've finished their family and they don't really want to be taking the pill. Um, and that's where our research is really looking to develop non-hormonal uh, treatments. And we have to say we haven't got great treatments out there yet, uh, but hopefully that will be coming in the future. Presumably a lot of women choose a surgical option, say hysterectomy? They do. So it, the surgical options uh, would be to destroy the lining of the womb in an endometrial ablation. Um, and the hope with that is that although your body is still functioning normally, it can't respond to the ovarian hormones, so there's no bleeding. Um, so that's a day case procedure, which would be maybe first line. And if that isn't something that a woman wants or they feel that they've had that and it hasn't worked properly for them, then a hysterectomy uh, would would be the next step. Um, I think the surgical techniques are improving and there's an option to have keyhole surgery uh, for some of these conditions, which, which really helps. Um, but if that's not possible, then you're looking at a, an operation that, you know, can have some, you know, significant uh, risks attached to it. Um, certainly will take your fertility away and um, maybe looking at a up to six-week recovery time. Um, so a surgery isn't certainly the easy option. Uh, many women choose that. Um, if they've finished their families and they're really having significant problems, it's certainly very effective. Uh, but it's a procedure that you have to, to consider very carefully before you go down that route. And certainly for, for young girls, it's, it's not really an option. It, it, you can't you sort of take away someone's fertility if, if, if that's going to be something that they're going to think about in later life. Definitely. So you're seeing girls that have fairly significant problems that would mm. be considering hysterectomies, I'd imagine. Yes. Mm. And how would you describe people that in that, just to give people a bit of perspective about whether or not they do have a problem, how would you describe those people that... Well, the usual people that go for hysterectomies would be people who have certainly finished their family. So it's maybe people in coming up maybe the 10 years before menopause. Um, so people in their 40s and early 50s um, can have uh, an increase in their blood loss. Um, they maybe have fibroids in their uterus, which are an overgrowth of the muscle layer. They're benign, but they can contribute to heavy bleeding. Um, and these women have usually tried a number of medical treatments that um, haven't really given them much benefit. They may have considered an endometrial ablation and decided it's not for them or it, they've had one and it hasn't worked for them um, or maybe aren't appropriate because some women, you know, it's not appropriate to do an endometrial ablation for anatomical reasons. 
So you, the usual woman is, is someone who's tried a number of, of treatments and they haven't been successful for her and she's still experiencing very heavy periods. Um, maybe had side effects from the treatments or they haven't worked. Um, and that would be the usual person. But there are women who choose a hysterectomy as a first-line treatment. And, you know, that's quite a reasonable response if, if you've decided, looked at all the different options and decided that none of them are for you and you've definitely finished your family and you're happy to take the risks of the surgery for the benefits that you will get later. So it's a very individual thing that you talk about with your gynaecologist. Yes, and, and consider very carefully. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it, I would say it's not the easy option, but it's certainly a very effective treatment. You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing menses and the various problems that can arise with Dr Jackie Mabin of the MRC Centre for Reproductive Health at the Edinburgh University. Your research is principally in look in uh, to do with um, excessive bleeding, isn't it? it excessive yes. blood loss. Can you describe someone who you can pick straight away, perhaps has excessive blood loss? What's the classic sort of story? Well, it, it, unfortunately, it's a it's a it's a very common complaint. Um, so, you know, I see women who come in, um, and they're usually very tired, have maybe two or three children that they're trying to look after while juggling a part-time or full-time job outside the house. Um, they are finding it very difficult to look after their children when they're having their period because they're sore and they're scared of flooding through onto their clothes. They're maybe missing a few days' work every month because they're too terrified to go into the office with male colleagues and even female colleagues. Um, they're spending a significant proportion of money on sanitary wear because they're going through so much. Um, and they're really at the end of their tether. Um, and they're very unhappy when they come into clinic. And I really get that. It's a significant impact on their lives. Um, Often when we go through the different treatments that are available, they start to get a little bit of relief that something's finally happening. I think women don't present very quickly. Um, they're often very stoic um, and are putting up with an awful lot because they're too busy to come to the doctor and there's so much else going on in their lives. Um, but usually women, we can manage to get something that helps. Um, sometimes it's not perfect. Uh, but, you know, I think it's a really important thing to discuss with your doctor if it's really having an impact on your life. So, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, most women have blood loss. It's just that it, I guess these people just get used to the amount of blood loss that they have and don't appreciate that Absolutely. it's abnormal. Yeah. And yeah. what what have I mean, you found? Because um, a lot of people would look at those women and, and say that they're just people who complain excessively. But in fact, your research has proven the opposite, yes? There are some yeah. particular people who do bleed a lot more than others. Absolutely. So part of my research is to quantify the amount of blood that, that people lose. Um, it's, it's often cited at, at dinner tables as being the worst job in the world. <laughs> but I think it's, it's actually really useful and really important to classify women's blood loss. Um, so the normal is anything between 5 mils and 80 mils, and it's not normal to get your blood loss measured, but as part of the research study we've done this, one of the women that took part in our study was losing 700 mils, um, which is a really significant amount. Um, she needed a blood transfusion and was really very unwell. Um, 
so we had to, you know, we had to, to bring her into hospital and, and treat her very quickly because very rarely it can be life threatening. Um, but, you know, a lot of women, if you're losing over 80 mils on a repeated basis, it's like donating blood every month, which you're not allowed to do because it makes you anemic. Um, so these women are significantly anemic. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's quite a privilege for me to witness um, these women and how they're actually able to cope with it. And I'm always really impressed by how they want to take part in research and, and improve things for future generations. And I'm very grateful to them for that. Um, so my research is categorising people into having heavy or normal bleeding and then trying to work out uh, what's going on within the lining of the womb that might um, contribute um, to them having heavy periods while their counterparts are very lucky and get away with a few days very light bleeding each month. So the research from what I can gather has actually done some genetic studies looking at various uh, genetic makeup of people who have excessive bleeding and seeing that it's different to women who have normal menses? Well, we were looking at the at the um, genes that were expressed within the lining of the womb. So it's all of our genetic makeup um, is it, different, uh, but genes can be switched on and switched off in different tissues in our body. So we were looking at um, whether genes were switched on or switched off um, in the lining of the womb at the time of a period. Um, really looking to see if the repair process um, to stop bleeding uh, was different in women with heavy loss and, and women with normal loss. Um, and we were looking at um, a particular protein um, that's turned on when oxygen levels are very low. And we think we need low oxygen levels to, to switch on the repair process and stop bleeding. And I think women with heavy bleeding may have a defective hypoxic response in the lining of their womb. So their oxygen levels remain high right the way through a period. So this trigger to start the repair process maybe isn't as efficient in those women, meaning that they get longer periods and maybe bleed more heavily. And is the hope with this research that therefore targeting that protein may help with treatments? Yeah, that, well, that's that's certainly the the long term view. Um, we have to say we don't don't really understand very well why some women do have very heavy periods. So this was really the first step to see if there were any differences between women with heavy and normal periods. Um, so we're just identifying the differences and then looking to see if there's any pathways that we can use, maybe medications to, to alter that and put them back into the more normal category. I think women often don't want to take medication, but I think if there's a process that's going on that's abnormal and you explain that you're maybe giving a medication to put it back into a normal physiology, then people find it's, it's much easier to get their head around that. Um, and then, you know, the nice thing would be that women hopefully wouldn't have to take something, you know, every day, like an oral contraceptive pill. It would be nice to have an, a medication that women could use just when they're bleeding. So we hope that maybe this very preliminary research will identify some new targets that then we can go on to do some, some research into whether these correct um, the abnormalities that are there um, and lighten up people's periods. So you produce the protein when there's hypoxia, which should be yeah. when you've done a certain amount of bleeding yeah. and the lining is lower. 
And do we know what circumstances switch that protein production on? Well, it's the low oxygen levels that turn on this protein. So this protein, every cell in your body has the capacity to make this protein. It's kind of the way that the cell defends itself against low oxygen levels. Um, So if the oxygen levels drop in any tissue in the body, this protein gets switched on to to generate um, a a lot of um, factors that will help the cell protect itself in low oxygen levels. Um, So usually it's switched on if there's a problem in the body, but we think in the lining of the womb, it's really switched on in a physiological manner. So it's switched on to, to drive the repair process. Um, So where low oxygen levels may be a problem elsewhere in the body, I think within the lining of the womb, it's probably necessary to have this low oxygen level for a very short space of time to switch on this protein to then drive the repair process. And if the oxygen levels don't dip, then the protein never gets switched on and repair maybe becomes delayed and women bleed for a long time. Mm. So that hypoxia, there's no way of really inducing that artificially at the moment. Well, there there are ways of doing that and there are medications that people are, are looking at to maybe um, turn it on even when oxygen levels are high. So th- I mean, there may be some ways of doing that, but it's, it's at an early stage at the moment. Right. Therefore, um, people should have a bit of a family history, I would think in those situations Um, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. It it could be that there's something that's developed over time that stopped the oxygen levels dipping. Um, And, you know, quite often people have a family history of heavy periods, but not always. Um, And certainly this factor may be deficient in women who have no family history. Um, These are questions that we we don't really have answers to yet, Uh, but it could have an impact on on anyone it's just working out which women that this is causing the heavy periods in and which women it's due to something else like fibroids or endometriosis and this is I guess that the key to our research is that we want to instead of treating all women the same um, trying to work out exactly what the defect is in each individual woman and then treating them appropriately and I think that personalized medicine is the way that will really improve care because hitting everyone with the same treatments, regardless of what's going on, um, to me doesn't make sense and probably explains why certain medications aren't working in certain people. Exactly. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. It's it's a useful discussion. What you're saying is that it's, there's no need to put up with debilitating symptoms. No, um, and there's ways to help and, and I think it's instead of having this massive impact on your life, um, it's worth having a conversation with your doctor and seeing if there's anything that that can be used to help. Um, Because I think women are are vital in society now and um, it's very important that we start to look after ourselves. Yes, the impacts are certainly something that should be taken into consideration. Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Dr Jackie Mabin from the University of Edinburgh's MRC Centre for Reproductive Health. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation and from all of us here at Wellbeing we'd like to say we wish you well.